it's, it's great to be with you this morning. Um, last night as I was thinking about what to preach, I thought I should probably focus on a topic that's familiar to me given the shortness of time. Now most of you will know that I'm on the cusp of um, submitting my PhD thesis. It's due in 20 days, so it's, it's going in. And I'm doing it on a 17th century Dutch theologian. And I thought I'd turn to him for some inspiration. Now his name was Heisbertus Futsius. Now remember in the Dutch, the, the G's are all soft, so that's why you have the H at the beginning. But Futsius was his name. And he served as a church pastor for 23 years before he then was called to serve as a professor of theology for 42 years. So he had a very long life and ministry. And when he accepted the call to the university, he had to say farewell to his church. Now that was a big deal for him because he'd been preaching there for 16 years and leading the church. And it was also the church where he grew up. So there was a double grief in saying goodbye. Now I thought this would be an appropriate area to touch on because I'll have to say goodbye to you very soon. Myself and Larissa and our kids Rachel and Susanna are going to be heading back to Australia, at least for a short while, very soon, about a week before Christmas. We're not too sure what the future holds for us, although I'll be seeking opportunities to do further research on theology. And we hope to do that somewhere not too far from Edinburgh, whether that's in Britain or continental Europe or something like that. So we'd appreciate your prayers as I finish my thesis, as I get examined on my thesis, as we prepare to move home, at least for a little bit, um, and as we prayerfully discern what God wants us to do next. But in a way, this is kind of like my farewell sermon to you, the last chance that I really have to say something before uh, I lose the opportunity to do that. Now, I want you to think for a few moments. If you were leaving this congregation, what's the one thing that you would want to say to them? What's the one thing that you think that we need to hear? What's the one message that you think could make a real difference to our lives? My friend Futsius spoke um, on a topic that he thought was important, um, and he took that topic from the book of Philippians. So we're going to read um, from Philippians now, Philippians chapter 1 and verse 27, and you can find that on page 980 of the Bibles, Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, and we're going to read all the way down to chapter 2, verse 11. So page 980, starting at chapter 1, verse 27. Only let your matter of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come to you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you, for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that I saw I had and now hear that I still have. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, 
did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Now, Footsius chose as his uh, verse for his farewell address to his church, chapter 1, verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Now, I have to admit that I was a little bit surprised when I learned the subject of the sermon. He spoke to his congregation about precision. That, that was his topic, precision. Now, to be honest, it's not the first thing that I would have spoken about. I probably would have picked something like Jesus or the gospel or loving one another or something like that. But he spoke about precision. Now, I've spent almost five years studying him, and I think I can appreciate a bit more now what he, what he was getting at. So I'm going to try and explain what he was getting at uh, in the course of my sermon today. Now, of course, in, the, in its original context, the letter to the Philippians was written by the Apostle Paul towards the end of his life when he was imprisoned in Rome awaiting trial. Now, he obviously had hoped to visit the church in Philippi, but you, you can see that he's painfully aware that he might not get to do so. His life might be coming to an end. And so he writes this letter to the Philippians to encourage them to live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ, to stand firm in their faith in the gospel of Christ. Now, of course, the Christians at Philippi were in danger. They're in danger from unbelievers outside the church who didn't understand them, who feared them, who attacked them. But they're also in danger of people inside the church. If you look across the page at chapter 3, for example, look across uh, at verse 2 of chapter 3. He says, Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision. We worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So the danger that he's addressing is not people outside the church. It's people inside the church. And it's people who put confidence in the works of the flesh. Now that confidence is epitomized in them making Christian men getting circumcised. But the, the point is, is that they're putting confidence in their works for their salvation. Now, Futsius faced a similar problem in his day 400 years ago. He was a major player in the fight against Arminianism. Now, if you haven't heard that word before, Arminianism is a works-based view of salvation. It's the idea that God predestines people to be saved based on what they would do if they were given the opportunity to choose God or not, to choose heaven or to choose hell. So it's a very different view of salvation to the one that the Bible preaches. Arminians believe that God doesn't predestine people to salvation, that it's up to each and every individual themselves to choose whether they're one of God's people, and they believe that God's given everyone sufficient grace to make that choice, leaving the rest up to us. Arminianism has a very high view of man's abilities and a very low view of the impact of sin. Now, Arminianism takes its name from a fellow called Jacob Arminius, who was a very famous theologian 400 years ago. In fact, he interviewed Futsius for his place at Bible College, 
and he was one of his primary lecturers. Now, it's probably coming as no surprise that Fuzius rejected Arminius' view of salvation. He insisted that our salvation is entirely a work of God's grace and that people are predestined to salvation by God, which has to be the case if we're to have any assurance that we will persevere until the end. Now, the view of Fuzius and others eventually came to be called Calvinism to distinguish it from Arminianism, but that's something of an anachronism because, of course, Calvin had died 50 years before these events took place. But because of his Calvinist views, Fuzius was actually kicked out of Bible college and had to complete his degree in private accommodation because he wasn't allowed to lodge with the other Bible students. And it was a really difficult time for, for Fuzius because Arminius and his followers were a very powerful and influential group. And this was a moment um, in history when the Dutch Republic was the centre of Protestant thought because the rest of the world were all busy fighting each other and the Dutch had just managed to throw off their Spanish conquerors and so they were free and they were able to get on with doing things like studying theology. And people flooded into the Dutch Republic from across the world to do that. So, so the Dutch Republic was a happening place and Arminius and his followers were the top dogs and they, you know, they were making a name for themselves. So this was a really rough time for Fuzius. And it wasn't until about 10 years after Fuzius had been kicked out of Bible college that the tide began to turn. The leading theologians and ministers from the Dutch Republic uh, met in a city which we, we've called Dort, or it's you know, Dortrecht in the Netherlands, and they were joined by 26 foreign delegates from here in Scotland, from England, from Switzerland and from Germany. And there would have been a plenty of delegates from France, but the king of France himself, King Louis XIII, actually stopped them from going. Because he saw that this thing was a big deal and he thought that it could upset the, the political stability of France. So this was a big deal. So they meet at Dort between 1618 and 1619, and that's a really important meeting because it's really the last time that a, a, a group of Protestants from across the world all get together to agree, this is what we believe. It's, it's the last time that that really happens. And at the Synod, they meet and they affirm what Scripture clearly teaches, that we're justified by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. Now, the Synod of Dort is significant for many reasons, but one reason it's significant to us is because it serves as a prelude to the Westminster Assembly, which happened a few decades later, between 1643 and 1653. And at the Westminster Assembly, they made the standards that govern our church right now. So a lot of their ideas come from the Synod of Dort, and Fuzius was directly involved in the events leading up to the Synod, and he was a delegate at the Synod. Now, he was a delegate when he was just 30 years old, which says something about him. It says that he was a very clever guy. It says he was very respected. Now, because he was so young, in fact, he was the third youngest person at the Synod, he was the last member of the Synod of Dort to die. He lived the longest. And so he made it his legacy to defend the Reformed faith. So he, he's kind of one of our forerunners. He's one of our allies. He's a terrific person. But he knew that with the Synod of Dort, the debate about Arminianism wasn't over because works-based views of salvation 
They're like punching clowns. You know what a punching clown You punch it and it comes back. You just punch it and it comes back. You punch it and it comes back. And Futsius experienced this in his own lifetime. In his first pastoral charge, um, he was an assistant and he had a senior minister who was an Arminian, even, even after the synod happened. And the senior minister tried to have him removed. And he got some of the leading intellectuals of the Dutch Republic to help him, including the most uh, famous and brightest legal mind in the entire world at the time, a guy called Hugo Grotius. So he brought some serious firepower to try and dislodge Futsius. He failed. Futsius was allowed to continue his ministry. Now, that's just one skirmish that he had, but he had a series of skirmishes with these Arminians and with their works-based view of salvation. Because um, that's what, that's what works-based salvation does. It keeps cropping up. There, there are always going to be people in the church who want to tell you that to be saved, yeah, you've got to believe in the gospel, but you've also got to do something else. And so even though Futsius preached his farewell address 15 years after the synod had finished, he's still sensitive to the dangers of works-based salvation. And he responds to this danger and he tries to prepare his congregation for this danger because he's not going to be there anymore. He's going. He's, he's off the picture. He tries to prepare them by preaching on Philippians 1.27. So let's read that verse again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Now, Paul walks a delicate balance in this verse. On the one hand, there's a clear emphasis on what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. In fact, he mentions the gospel twice. He wants to remind them that their salvation is secure because Jesus died on their behalf, not because of anything that they've done. On the other hand, he encourages the Philippians to, read it again, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now let's be clear about what he's not saying. He's not saying that we get our salvation on lay-by. Okay, it's not a buy now, pay later arrangement. We don't have to work to deserve our salvation in retrospect. That's the point. We don't deserve it. It's a gift. But the fact that we have been given salvation is a revolutionary one. And it's not revolutionary just because it calls us to live better. It's revolutionary because it actually infuses into us a new nature that is empowered by the Holy Spirit to make us live worthy of the gospel. It's not just a calling, it's a new nature that's given to us. And so the message is not make sure that you deserve it. The message is to be what you are, to become what you are, a beneficiary of the gospel of Christ. And so on the one hand, we can have complete assurance and comfort of our salvation. But at the same time, there's no room for complacency and there's no room for laziness. And this is what the Arminians were suggesting. They were saying, you Calvinists, you, you Reformed people, with your emphasis on predestination and grace, that just encourages laziness, just encourages complacency. But that's a false charge because it's a false dichotomy. And this is where a lot of theology goes wrong. A lot of theology assumes that God and human beings are involved in some sort of zero-sum game where human responsibility and human freedom only comes at the expense of God's sovereignty. But in this perspective, 
God's just a human being writ large. And we know that that's not what God is like. As Isaiah 55 verse 8 says, God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts. His ways are higher than our ways. God is so big and his sovereignty is so great that he can predetermine our eternal destiny. He can govern our thoughts. He can even determine our individual choices in such a way that we're still accountable and we're still free. It's not a zero-sum game. In fact, we can actually go so far as to say that God's sovereign decree actually establishes our freedom. It doesn't take it away. Now, of course, this all depends on what we mean by freedom because it turns out that a lot of people have the wrong view of freedom. Many people, especially Arminians, think that freedom means being indifferent, that your will isn't inclined one way or the other, that you can just do what you want or not do that. But that's a very thin view of freedom because the fact is that freedom, true freedom, is all about conforming to a purpose. True freedom means conforming to a purpose. Let me explain what I mean. Does anyone remember the little golden books? Did anyone read them or some people? Not many. Okay, so little golden books were like these sort of bedtime stories, but, but not like Brothers Grimm. They were kind of sweetness and light, but they had good, good morals to them. And one of my favourite little golden books is a book called Toodles. Now, Toodles was a little steam engine, and Toodles decided that one day he wanted to go through the meadows so he could chase the butterflies. And he was really annoyed at having train tracks that so restricted him and prevented him from doing that. So you know what he does? One day, he jumps the tracks so he can pursue his dream and, and chase the butterflies. Now, you can guess how the story ends. He gets off the tracks, he, he gets in the meadows, and then he stops. Because without his tracks, he can't do anything. Without his tracks, he can't go anywhere. Freedom doesn't mean doing what you want. Freedom means doing what you were made to do. Until Toodle learned that his purpose was to be a little steam engine hauling carriages up and down the line, he couldn't be truly free. And as people made in God's image, we are truly free when we live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ. That's what true freedom is, fulfilling our God-given purpose. And in order to do this, you need to be precise. That's where precision comes in. We cannot live a life worthy of the gospel unless we know what that looks like. We cannot live a life worthy of the gospel until we practice it, until we actually attempt to do it. And that requires precision. It requires precise thought and it requires precise action. It involves training both the mind and the heart. And that's why Paul encourages the Philippians to be of one mind and to stand firm because they need to know what to do, but then they need to do it. And that's hard. That throws up a lot of obstacles. And you can see the obstacles if you look down verses 28, 29 and 30. Just have a skim through that. There's a lot of obstacles there. In verse 28, we see that there are moments that are frightening. In verse 29, we see that there are moments of suffering. And in verse 30, we see that there are moments of conflict. 
But I want you to notice something else about these trials that that the Philippians and by extension we are meant to expect. These trials involve not just hard work, but hard thinking. These trials involve not just hard work, but hard thinking. What are the Philippians frightened of in verse 28? They're frightened of the ideas of their dangerous opponents of works-based salvation. In verse 29, what accompanies their suffering? Their faith or, or their belief. And in verse 30, what accompanies their conflict? It's the reports of similar conflicts. In other words, their faith is deeply practical, but it's also thoughtful. And these two things go together. We can live out the Christian life better if we understand it better. Now, if you're doing that properly, you can never have too much head knowledge. Now, I've met a lot of Christians who take a very low view of studying the Bible too seriously, of doing things like going to Bible college or getting a degree, heaven forbid. That's pretty prevalent in the evangelical church. Like, you see it in different pockets, but, but it's not an uncommon view. But the point that um, I would make is that you can never have too much head knowledge and too little heart knowledge. If you have a better understanding of God and his work, that increases your love and your good works. It doesn't result in complacency or laziness. If you're lazy or complacent, then you're a lousy student of God's word. You're not actually studying it properly. So let me encourage you as Larissa and me and the kids prepare to leave this church and to leave this country. Let me encourage you to strive for a life of precision, to think deeply about the gospel, to read your Bibles more and more deeply, to read a commentary alongside it so that you can understand it better, to prepare for Sunday evening gatherings by reading the passage in advance and thinking about it. Um, go to public lectures on theology. Enroll in part-time courses at Bible college. Do a degree in theology. Do a PhD in theology. And do all of these things, not for their own sake, right? Do them so that you can love God and love God's people better. That the two things go together. Paul encourages the church at Philippi to pursue a life of precision. And Futsius encourages them to do the same nearly 400 years ago. And I'm encouraging you to do the same today. Unless you fear that a life of precision might become too boring or too academic, let me encourage you with what Paul says in chapter 2. Let's read the first five verses of chapter 2. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Now, verse 5 is a bit clunky there, but um, the NIV translates that, have the mind of Christ. I think it's a bit nicer, but it's also what it's actually getting at, have the mind of Christ. By pursuing a life of precision, we receive many benefits. We receive, verse 1, encouragement in Christ and comfort and love. And we participate in the Spirit. We experience affection and sympathy. 
And so here you see again that head and heart knowledge go hand in glove. And that's why in verse 2 he can encourage the Philippians to have both the same mind and the same heart because head and heart go together. And in verse 3, do you notice he encourages the Philippians to be humble? Now some people think that the study of theology can endanger your humility. You know, the more you know, the bigger head you get, the prouder you get. But the fact is, the more theology that you learn, the more you know that you don't know. And that makes you humble and therefore more kind and more loving to others. And that's why he can then go to verse 4 and say, if you're more humble, your attention is taken away from yourselves and redirected to others. And the purpose of all this is found in verse 5, which is to have the mind of Christ. That's what it means to have perfect freedom. That's what it means to be what we are. That's what it means to live a life worthy of the gospel, to be conformed to the pattern and the beauty of Christ. So pursue precision in life. Precision sharpens the mind, precision exercises the heart, and precision brings us into ever greater conformity with our Lord Jesus Christ, to whom be glory and honour forever and ever. Amen.